is Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this podcast series explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they're able to overcome or transcend. Whether you are a friend of the pod or a new listener, we're really glad you have found us. We bring Women Transcend to you free and without advertising every week. If you like the program, one thing you can do to support Women Transcend is leave a review for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that new episodes will automatically show up in your podcast player each week. And now for today's episode. The International Labor Organization estimates that there are about 21 million victims of human trafficking globally. 68% of them are trapped in forced labor. 26% are children. 55% are women and girls. It is estimated that human trafficking is a $150 billion a year industry worldwide. According to the State Department, trafficking is the world's fastest growing criminal enterprise. In 2016, an estimated one out of every six endangered runaways reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children were likely child sex trafficking victims. Of those, 86% were in the care of social services or foster care when they ran away. As we have discussed in previous episodes, during conflict or war, when people have become displaced or are otherwise at increased risk, they can become easy victims to human trafficking. If you'd like to find out more about this specific issue, check out our episode, Living in Conflict Zones, Women, Children, and Survival. So today's episode is about human trafficking, what it is, who it is, and what to watch for. Before I go any further, I want to read a quote from a woman who survived and escaped her traffickers. I think these few poignant sentences can purvey more about this issue than any pontificating that I might ever do. This is from a story from the British website, Stop the Traffic. And the quote. Two years ago, everything changed. I was trafficked. I was fooled. I was deceived by a man who said that he loved me. The tragedy is that I believed him. Now I know that love is not shown by forcing me to work on the streets, beating me up, force-feeding me, and turning me into someone with no mind of my own. I had become like a frightened rabbit. I was terrified that he would kill me. Death too often felt like my only way to escape. People are product. I was one of them. But I am a survivor. I have a new life, but I am haunted by the faces of those who used me, those whom I did not choose, those for whom I was nothing more than a 10-minute thing. 
Coming up next is my interview with Dr. Karen Anderson, a professor of communication at Colorado State University and an activist and researcher on the issues related to human trafficking. Welcome to Women Transcend, Karen. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. It's great to be here. I'm really anxious to talk with you about this topic because it's one that uh, we hear a lot about, I think, but I think that a lot of people really don't understand what it is. And I'd, I would enjoy hearing from you. What is human trafficking? Absolutely. Well, human trafficking is unfortunately something that is woven into our daily lives, both here in the United States and abroad. Um, if you talk to legal experts or law enforcement, they'll give you the legal definition of human trafficking, which is exploiting someone for purposes of labor or commercial sex through force, fraud, or coercion. A second type of human trafficking or second part of that definition is using a minor for commercial sex purposes, and you don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. So underage commercial sex, as well as exploitative labor or commercial sex, um, where force, fraud, or coercion is involved. That's kind of the legal definition of human trafficking. But human trafficking has many faces, both domestically and internationally, and it takes many forms. Most of us are sort of familiar with the media version of human trafficking that we see, uh, which is the uh, commercial sex exploitation of, of young women. But the footprint of trafficking is much broader. Um, of course, it includes commercial sex exploitation, but it also includes labor exploitation in a wide variety of industries. It includes underpaid or exploitative domestic work, uh, domestic servitude, where people may be brought here, um, have their legal identification taken and then held for their labor. Um, it can extend to certain situations where pornography is being produced, and it happens in a variety of industries. If you want to see the full footprint of human trafficking, I really recommend polarisproject.org. Um, their website has published what they call the typology of modern slavery, and it gives you a wide range of examples of the industries in which human trafficking takes place, who the kind of trafficker profile is for each industry, and what to watch out for for us in our daily lives. Yeah, Polaris is a great resource to find out more about the issue and to find out also what's going on in this country and even in your state. So related to that, I think that there is sometimes a misconception. I think it's getting better. A lot of people have been working on this, but I think there's a misconception that human trafficking is something that happens in Eastern Europe or in Southeast Asia, and it doesn't happen here. Is that the truth? That is the misconception that I hear a lot when I do presentations in the community, but that's absolutely, sadly, not the case. Um, there is human trafficking in every country in the world, including the United States and developed European, advanced European countries. And so this is definitely an international problem. And the problem itself doesn't necessarily look like the images that we might be most familiar with in the media. 
Um, when I do presentations, particularly with students, I ask them, you know, where, what's your conception of human trafficking? When I say, you know, sex trafficking, what do you think of? Um, and I invariably get an answer where they talk about the movie Taken. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's this notion of, you know, sort of a, a young uh, woman from the United States traveling abroad and being whisked into a van and carried off and somebody needs to go and forcibly rescue her. And, and that's ostensibly what human trafficking looks like. Or I think a second common version of it is, you know, we think of maybe the red light district in India, uh, where people are in a, a terribly destitute situation, but it seems very removed from our culture and our daily lives. And whereas there is a serious problem in, uh, you know, the red light district in India and places like that, um, we have similar forms of exploitation here in the United States. It's just that the face looks very different. Yeah. And so that is a great segue to who are the ideal victims? And if you were a trafficker looking for someone to catch, who might you be looking for? Yeah, so what traffickers are really good at doing is exploiting vulnerabilities. Um, and people have different sorts of vulnerabilities. And depending on what the trafficker needs, they become very good at preying on those vulnerabilities. So, for example, if we're talking about labor trafficking and a trafficker wants to make some money, a good profit off of somebody who's in kind of a desperate situation, one way to do that is to, quote unquote, help people get across the border, maybe people who um, have tried unsuccessfully to, to migrate to the United States looking for work, offer to get them over. Once you get them in the United States and, and get them in an employment situation, either they don't have identification or they don't they aren't allowed to keep their identification. And they're told, all right, we got you here, but now you have to work off your debt. And then suddenly that person is trapped in an exploitative situation. Often they don't know uh, what the the laws are in the United States. They don't know what we consider to be an exploitative labor situation. And even if they did, um, they might, for a variety of reasons, not be trusting of law enforcement. So suddenly they're here and they're in this perpetual cycle of exploitation that they can't really get out of. There have been documented cases in a variety of industries uh, where things like that happen. It could be hotel and restaurant industry. It could be in Colorado, it's the sheep herding industry and the agricultural industry. So the way that we get our cheap labor in many cases emanates from a trafficking situation. So that's that's sort of labor trafficking. Sex trafficking, and particularly when we're talking about domestic sex trafficking, there's a broad array of vulnerabilities. In some cases, it might be young people who are on the street. Um, maybe they got kicked out of their house or maybe they don't have a, a safe home situation. And so they perceive that the street is a better place for them to be. Um, but once you're on the street for a, a few days, you realize that it's hard to find shelter. It's hard to find food. And so someone comes poses as benevolent, poses sometimes as a mentor, and other times poses as a boyfriend, offers to take you in, offers to take, you know, give you a roof on your head and treats you with love and buys you nice things. And if, if that's something that's been in short supply in your life, you may recognize that as, as a godsend. 
Um, another context uh, where vulnerabilities are exploited, um, maybe somebody, maybe a young person doesn't have a bad home life. Maybe they have a good home life, but they just feel for whatever reason, unattractive or unloved, or they don't have a close circle of friends, or they're being bullied at school or online, and someone approaches them, potentially maybe in an online context, poses again as a friend or a mentor or a significant other, um, forms a relationship with them. And in some cases, traffickers will cultivate relationships for a period of months. And then they get that young person to leave their home, to move out, to join them for what seems like kind of a fun, glamorous lifestyle. Let's, you know, he's going to buy you clothes and get your hair done and go to parties. And and that that lasts for a while. It's a honeymoon period. And pretty soon the trafficker will say, hey, you know, I really need you to kind of pitch in around here. You're not really doing anything. I'm buying you all this stuff. You got to contribute to the family. And the way to do that is this. And so then the person is slowly pulled into a commercial sex situation um, that becomes exploitative. And when the boyfriend or mentor act doesn't work anymore, if the young person kind of resists that exploitative situation, then the traffickers will change uh, and usually become abusive or threatening. And Uh so that's where they go from fraud Um, So starting out to pose as a caring individual is the fraud part of that definition. But then they can switch to coercion and they have a variety of coercive tendencies, whether that is, you know, having explicit pictures that maybe were taken in the context of what the person was a thought was a romantic relationship and saying, you know, I'm going to I'm going to put these out on Instagram and share them with all of your contacts. Or it could be, you know, I know where you live and I know you have a little sister. And if you don't do this for me, I'm going to go I'm going to go get her. So there are an infinite number of ways that traffickers exploit vulnerabilities in people. And so one of the things that we need to do if we want to fight human trafficking is learn to identify two people's vulnerabilities in our community and respond to them in a constructive and productive way so that the trafficker doesn't look like somebody's best option. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, something that you mentioned was deception. And I think that this is probably true globally when it comes to trafficking, is that it doesn't happen like it did in the movie Taken, as you said. Um, The victim may be chosen and then deceived. And, you know, they get this great offer of a better life or just safety or a dry place to sleep or some great clothes or whatever it is that they are lacking in their life situation and they're promised something better. It's probably the exception somebody just grabbed. Right. I'm sure that does happen, but I think that we need to understand, importantly, what you said is the, the people that are, are vulnerable. We need to think about those vulnerabilities and address those so that when they get this offer, you know, if you come with me, I'll set you up with some great clothes and a place to stay. We need to get to that person before that offer comes. Absolutely. And you're correct, both in international and domestic contexts, fraud or deception is a big part of the cycle. 
globally, internationally, sometimes parents who are poor and unable to provide for all of their children are approached by somebody who says, hey, I want to take your daughter um, and I'm going to give her education and a job and she's going to get to go to America and she'll send money home. In some cases, they don't know that they're handing their child into a, a dangerous situation. And so that's that's a piece of that puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is culture. And it's interesting because it's easy for us to identify cultural factors that intensify trafficking in international contexts. Say, well, if you go somewhere like India, they don't value girls, which is true. They have a history of exploiting women um, for in commercial sex settings, which is true. And so, you know, that they just don't value girls. And that's why that's such a big problem uh, over there. In the United States, though, one of the reasons that young women in particular are vulnerable to to deception, to these ploys, is a bunch of stuff in our culture tells young women that the most valuable thing about them is their body and their sex appeal. And those messages hit girls at a very, very young age. Um, and Way so we too young. <laughs> yes. So we in the United States need to reflect on what our culture says about what makes uh, young women and young men valuable, uh, what their contribution can be so that they're less susceptible to that message that come here, you'll feel sexy and feeling sexy is the way that you can feel valued and loved. Uh huh. And in this culture, sexuality is a way to get power, or at least feel like you have power. It is. And that's one of the really tricky things uh, when it comes to commercial sex of a variety of kinds. Um, not all commercial sex is classified legally as human trafficking. Um, but, but all commercial sex tells people that you are valuable for your body, for sex, for physical attractiveness. And that's a message that we need to sort of tone down in our culture. And it contributes to people being vulnerable to being trafficked. Uh-huh. Now, you wrote a really interesting blog piece on code words. And if I have learned one thing from doing this podcast, it is how much we use code words and don't realize how much it is a part of our culture. And this isn't necessarily a code word, but is it appropriate to use the word slavery when we're talking about people that have been trafficked? Um, in Certain contexts, yes. Um, but what we, what I like to think about as a communication studies professor is, all right, what framework, what linguistic, what communication framework are we putting on this issue? Because the way we talk about the issue and the way we think about the issue predisposes us to different policy solutions. So let me give you a small example about the importance of language, and then I'll talk broadly about sort of two frameworks that are used to discuss human trafficking in our culture. Um, the small example of the importance of language is the word child prostitute. All right, child prostitute used to be a phrase that we would hear fairly commonly in the 80s and 90s, and it was meant to denote somebody who was a prostitute who was under the age of 18. For many, many years in this country, prostitution was seen as a crime and everybody involved was seen as the criminal, the prostitute, the pimp, and the customer. And so for many, many years, even people under 18 who were in these commercial sex situations would be arrested as criminals. But if you think about it, in any other context, 
somebody who is under the age of 18 who is having sex with an adult person is a victim of statutory rape, is a, is a crime victim. And so one of the first things that people who are working on commercial sex exploitation in the United States did as they were talking to law enforcement was to try to open their eyes and say, look, the word child prostitute shouldn't even exist, right? This is this is a victim of, of rape. This is somebody who is victimized in this situation. And so by changing that, by, by noting the way that 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 label is problematic, that opened the floodgates to actually changing the law. And so now what we have in many states is what's called a victim-centered approach to human trafficking that seeks to identify and prosecute both the customers in the situation and the traffickers or pimps, um, but really treats the people who are caught, who are being exploited as, as victims, as people who are in need of help and redress rather than people who should be prosecuted. And so that's just one sort of small example of how linguistic labels really do matter. Now, if you look broadly, I said earlier that there are really two broad frameworks for understanding the problem of human trafficking. One is called the neo-abolitionist framework, and this is the framework that tends to be most popular in public awareness campaigns, in faith-based community responses to this problem. And it's frankly the one that most of us who've just sort of heard about human trafficking in our daily lives, it's the framework we tend to, to filter it through. And the neo-abolitionist framework really tries to draw strategically on the original abolitionist movement, right? The original abolitionist movement was a social justice movement eradicating slavery, or at least the transatlantic slave trade was seen as, as a great victory. And of course it was. And so contemporary anti-trafficking advocates thought, well, one great way to help people really be passionate about combating human trafficking contemporarily is to connect it to that historical abolitionist movement. Um, so that's where we get the linguistic frames of, you know, be a modern day abolitionist, oppose modern day slavery, and all of that. Now, what this perspective, the neo-abolitionist perspective, has some kind of assumptions built into it and some drawbacks. One of the assumptions built into it often is that we got rid of slavery in the 19th century and now it's back. And of course, people who are informed on the issue of global human trafficking say it, it never went away. It just changed its form. It changed its face. And so the neo-abolitionist framework tends sometimes not to recognize that this is a problem that's always been with us. It also is a framework that tends to emphasize that the best way to reduce trafficking is to sort of clamp down and stop it. So aggressive policing or sending people who are in sort of positions of privilege to people who are in positions not of privilege and rescuing them. And so it's that abolishing and rescuing tends to be the public policy responses that the neo-abolitionist framework prefers. They're the ones that would um, be in the movie Taken, right. uh, rushing in and saving the, the woman before she was auctioned. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, it's this notion of we sort of need somebody who's big and strong to come in and save these vulnerable people. Uh -huh. 
So what folks who have been either service providers, anti-trafficking professionals, or academics who study this issue really wanted to introduce what is called the human rights framework. And I, by calling it that, I'm not meaning to suggest that folks who, who use that abolitionist frameworks are unconcerned about human rights. Um, they absolutely are concerned about human rights and want to want to do the right thing. But it, the distinction between the abolitionist framework and the human rights framework is one that says, all right, one of the th- reasons why trafficking is so prevalent is because people are vulnerable in society. So a human rights framework says, We need to reduce people's vulnerabilities, whether those be economic vulnerabilities, emotional vulnerabilities, whatever they are, we need to reduce those vulnerabilities. And we need to set up our society in a way that doesn't make it easy to exploit some groups of people. And so the the human rights perspective says what people really need is control over their own lives and choices that are humane. And so the emphasis then is on systemic solutions to the problem of human trafficking rather than on, okay, we're just going to rescue and prosecute. Um, And so that's where you have discussion of, for example, non-exploitative supply chains uh, in the labor market, uh, buying things that are free trade. Uh, or that comport with non-exploitative practices. Um, that would be a human rights response to the pros- to the problem of labor trafficking. And to that, I would just like to um, highlight uh, some legislation that Polaris is supporting, which requests some transparency in the supply chain, which uh, you mentioned. Yes. Yes. So Polaris Project, if you go to their website, they have sample legislation um, that you can take to your state legislators, which is really helpful. They also, Polaris Project, did an audit of the laws in all 50 states to determine whether or not they were complying with anti-trafficking best practices. And so those laws can, as you say, have to do with regulating commerce, both domestically and, you know, how businesses deal with international partners and providing incentives to those that have exploitative free uh, supply chains. Um, And also laws can relate to how your law enforcement in your state deals with trafficking uh, victims and perpetrators. Who do they consider to be a victim and are they using a victim-centered approach to particularly problems of commercial sex and labor exploitation? Laws can also be put in place so that uh, labor regulators in industries like hotels, food service, agriculture, etc., are attentive both to the working conditions in these factories and farms and places of business, but also are aware of the ways in which people who are being trafficked for their labor, particularly women, are even more vulnerable to also being trafficked for purposes of sex. And so part of what Polaris Project resources help you do is learn how to, one, talk to your legislators and educate them on the complexities of this problem. But then they they have sample legislation up there, legislative language, so that you can improve the trafficking best practices, anti-trafficking best practices in your state. 
And you had mentioned um, you are in Colorado, and you had mentioned that your state went from a, a B to an A, I believe, after some there was attention paid to the fact that, that you didn't get rated at an A. Is that it wasn't. It was actually from a D, as in dog. Oh, sorry. So we, yes. Gosh, we yeah, were. that's a big difference. Huge <laughs> <laughs> difference. Yeah, that's why the Polaris Project audit of the states was actually very, very impactful uh, for a lot of state legislatures because no lawmakers, and this is one area where people can actually still have some bipartisan success because human trafficking tends to be a problem that people of all political affiliations, of all religious or non-religious affiliations uh, recognize as a problem. And so, yeah, when Polaris Project um, did an audit of our laws in Colorado several years ago, they gave us a D rating. And that was primarily due to the fact that we didn't have a victim-centered approach in our policing. So we were still treating victims of human trafficking, particularly commercial sex exploitation, as criminals. And when our lawmakers saw the D rating, um, they really were motivated to, to change that because it can have a lot of bad PR ramifications for your state, but also because they didn't realize that people in our state were being doubly victimized, both by traffickers and then by our law enforcement situation or criminal justice system. So they pushed through uh, with a bipartisan effort, a series of legislative reforms. Um, And yeah, we went from a D to, I believe, an A, it might have been an A minus, but um, we jumped back up into that good range. And so that was really, you know, in, in the case of Colorado, nobody was actively trying to intensify, you know, the problems of people being trafficked. There just wasn't a widespread awareness of what we could actually do to solve it. And and when Polaris and other organizations on the ground said, okay, here are your solutions. This is what your legislation should say. This is what your businesses should do. People were willing to act and it really was transformative in our state. Yeah. And this is something that advocates calling on you listeners can easily get involved in because they have example legislation on the website for Polaris and you can just get in contact with your representative and say, this is something that I support. Will you introduce this? They do. One thing that uh, some anti-trafficking organizations in our state did as part of that push is they organized an annual anti-trafficking day at the Capitol. And this is where um, nonprofits bring people from their community all on the same day. We converge on the Capitol. There are demonstrations. There are sometimes uh, legislation introduced on the floor of Congress. We meet with legislators. But it's a way for legislators to see people in our state really do care about this. This is something my constituents care about. And so something like organizing an anti-trafficking day at your state capitol not only raises awareness for the general public because it gets covered in the news, but it gets legislators' attention. And it really, it really does make a difference. Because of the importance of this issue and the extent of our discussion, we are making this a two-part episode. So join us next week for part two on human trafficking. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. 
You can do us a big favor and tell at least one other person about our podcast and how to find us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure you don't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player. A big thanks to Dr. Karen Anderson for speaking with us for today's episode. And of course, to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good. Tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode.